should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever. Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome. Welcome, welcome. Happy Monday. Happy Monday after Easter. Happy Easter to all of those who recognized and celebrated yesterday. And uh, I'm sad to say, though, in this past week um, that we have not been in the studio, there's been just a handful of bad news. And I'll start with with one, uh, one very recent. And on Easter, there was a terrorist attack uh, that happened in Pakistan. And so there's what's been reported so far is over 65 people uh, have been killed, over 300 have been injured, and this attack was intended to target Christians who were celebrating Easter in the eastern side of Lahore. Uh, a Taliban group called Jamaat al arar has claimed responsibility, in which they have had, I guess, former ties with Islamic State, but we don't know, we can't say for sure that that is um, the case today. But allegedly they wanted to send a message to the president of Pakistan that they have entered the country and uh, will will be doing more attacks, which obviously we condemn any type of these attacks and it just hurts uh, really, really bad that there are, uh, you know, people out there who feel that they have to do these types of things um, in order to send a message. And so I wanted to have a moment of silence for the families affected by the tragedy and uh, just prayers that one day as human beings on this earth, we will uh, have peace and love in our hearts instead of, instead of this. So a moment. I have more bad news, and and that is very uh, particular to the LGBTQ community. And for those who have been following LGBT news, you know that in Georgia, uh, there had been an attempt to pass an anti-gay bill, um, which would have allowed for businesses to discriminate against LGBTQI people. And uh, I'm happy to say, though, today that the governor, Nathan Deal, Uh, of Georgia has vetoed that bill today, although leading up to it, it had taken lots and lots and lots of voices to denounce that particular bill. And, you know, I just don't understand it. It's like, you you know, these politicians need to hear the people like you've been elected to office to represent the people. And again and again, they try to or attempt to pass these types of bill. Uh, But on the other side, I have to say that we have uh, actual bad news. And that comes out from North Carolina, in which North Carolina had had actually passed a bill that allows for, uh, you know, businesses to to discriminate against LGBTQI people, specifically transgender people and access to public accommodations. Uh, This bill would not allow for local government to create their own anti-discrimination bills. And so there's obviously have been public outcry regarding the passage of that bill. And uh, just to say just to say this, though, that this morning or I should say yesterday 
Uh, there has been an announcement that the ACLU of North Carolina has filed a lawsuit, a federal lawsuit against North Carolina. And so at this time, you know, we kind of need to come together to understand that it, it's not just one person. It's not two or a group of people who have to stand up and fight for equal rights. It takes all of us. It takes corporations. It takes communities. It takes human beings. Um, so with that being said, that's just some of the news that I wanted to start Monday off with. And I'm very sorry, but the, the message here is that we've got to come together and continue fighting. Let's get today's uh, show started. Today's show is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. In 2008, Larry King was 14 years old when he was murdered in a school computer room by his fellow classmate, Brandon McKernany. Uh, who was also 14. Allegedly, Brandon was angry and outraged by Larry's openness about his sexuality, or more importantly, his gender identity. In today's time, if Larry had been given the opportunity to live to see the day that Laverne Cox had graced the cover of Time magazine, the first transgender woman to do so, or that Caitlyn Jenner, gold medal Olympian, had come out on national television to 17 million people as a trans woman, or maybe even witnessed Jazz Jennings' clean and clear commercials, Larry may have been able to come out as a transgender teenager. Our guest today is a clinical assistant professor at New York Un University who became interested in, the, in Larry's case and attended the trial with the intent to write his latest book, which is out, A Murder Over a Girl. Let's welcome Ken Corbett to the program. Ken, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, very, very excited to have you with us, and thank you for writing um, this book. I, I mean, it, it, it's just so special in that it, it comes from all different uh, facets of, of opinions and facts, that it's not just, you know, one person's detailed account of what happens, but you yourself as a, a psychologist. Um, let's start with why you were compelled, uh, you know, after hearing about Larry's case to study it and to attend um, the trial. What, what made you want to go from, uh, you know, Brooklyn to the other side of the country in Oxnard to cover this case? Right, right. People have often... I've been asked that question several times, and generally I begin by laughing and saying that it was just hubris mm -hmm. <laughs> to show up, um, having never done anything like this. Um, so, uh, but that's not entirely uh, true, but it's a little bit true. Um, I've been studying boys for uh, 25 years um, and writing about them. And right at the uh, time, I read about Larry's memorial service in the New York Times, so, which you know, happened right after the murder in 2008. I had just finished the book. My last book is a book about boys and about masculinity. So, I got very interested in the story where, and, and I've also been particularly interested in the concept of the normal boy and what does that mean. Um, and so, I got, as I'm saying here, interested in the story about two kids, one of whom was right off uh, from the start. Uh, that being Brandon, identified as a normal boy, and that idea about him continued to, through the trial, and I think had a really big impact on what happened at the trial. And then a second child, um, who was identified uh, as first at first as a gay boy, um, but uh, we began to understand that, um, indeed, he may have been a transgendered child or a transgender kid on the brink of uh, coming out. Um, so I got really interested in trying to see what I could learn about these two different lives and how they came together tragically. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's what guided me in the beginning. 
I want to start uh, by reading a paragraph in your book, uh, which, mm-hmm. you know, just struck me. And it's in the beginning of the book uh, early on. To me, it pretty much sums up the problems we continue to face as a society and uh, pretty much sums up the reasoning behind this particular tragedy. We adults are behind the world in which our children live. They are running ahead. And in failing to catch up, we neglect them. We fail kids daily by not taking a more active hand in examining their lives, including the fossilized norms that no longer account adequately for their lives. Let's talk about the, you know, the meaning and kind of uh, what you meant behind that. I, obviously, I, I'm attracted to it, but I, I want to open up discussion to our listeners today. Sure, sure. I, I, let, let's just take up two things there, and maybe you have another question as well, but one thing I would say is that I think this case um, is an indictment on the ways in which we neglect and abuse children in this country. Um, the school that Larry and Brandon attended was originally designed for 600 kids. At the time of the murder, there were 1,000 kids there. Um, and so the school itself could not function in there. And, you know, we don't have to go into so many details, but there are many, many ways in which the school was not functioning, and one of them was the ways in which the teachers in particular, I think, could not and did not have a way to understand Larry, and at the same time did not and uh, have a way also to understand Brandon. So Larry had begun to undertake a, uh, at the very least, gender questioning, um, and um, he had begun to uh, accessorize the school uniform with things like earrings and makeup, nail polish, a pair of boots. He, he never, uh, because it's the school policy that kids have to show up in their uniform, he always wore his uniform. It was just the way in which he accessorized his uniform. So, uh, you know, many people speak of him as cross-dressing, but I don't think that's exactly what we have in mind when we think of cross-dressing. Um, so, and, and the teachers would refer to him in these ways. And, and what they would do in turn is they could only look at his behavior as something to be stopped, not something to be understood. Um, there were only two, an assistant principal and his homeroom teacher, were the only two people, as far as I could tell, who actually took the time to inquire with him about what was going on and to try to help him um, in any way. Um, so I think that goes to the fossilized norm. Mm-hmm. They were operating with these ideas about, you know, what a normal boy was. And Brandon, on the other hand, was um, taken to be the normal boy. Um, you know, he was a white kid in a predominantly Hispanic and African-American school. Um, you know, as I say in the book, he's blonde and tall and athletic. And he, I think probably a smart kid, although he was always underperforming. Um, he, uh, you know, he could have been like an advertisement for boy. And so even though across that academic year, the fall and into the uh, early winter prior to the murder, he had been, uh, his grades had fallen off. He had been taken out of any honors classes that he was in. He was sleeping in class. He was missing class. His father was routinely showing up at the school trying to see what was going on. And still, um, teachers persisted in, in seeing him as normal and that Larry was the problem. Um, and uh, so uh, at the 
end of the trial, I spoke to it once. I thought it was very poignant. And she said to me, all of that looking, and we were looking at the wrong child. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, I have, I have so much to touch on that. And, uh, I, you know, it's like throughout the entire book, um, there was always a moment in which I felt that a system had failed both these kids. Um, you know, you, you start, let's, let's just start with Larry, uh, and go backwards here or not, Mm -hmm. you know, as, as far as the trial was concerned, which focused in on, um, Brandon, uh, almost at the end of the trial, almost felt like Brandon was the victim in which, uh, the defense team was able to turn that around. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But Larry, um, is the victim as we know mm-hmm. is the person who's been murdered here starting with his life uh you know he had been neglected and abandoned pretty much mm-hmm. since birth right yes yes well he was uh he lived for the first two and a half years of his life with his biological mother um who was a single uh mother um we don't know so very much about her um we do know that the state intervened when Larry was two and a half to remove uh, him and his younger brother from her care. Um, and we know that when the state does that, that there has to be a very significant history of neglect and abuse. Um, we know from uh, her arrest record um, and from things that I was told by local law enforcement that she had a history uh, she was a sex worker. She uh, was uh, addicted to crack cocaine and alcohol, um, and that she had been using at the time that Larry uh, was conceived and born. Larry was a pretty fragile kid. He had lots of learning problems. He was always um, in need of special resources at school. Mm-hmm. Um, but most people spoke of him as a very sweet kid, um, but he was fragile. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, in some ways, um, the ways in which he was always seen to be a problem, that also uh, I found to be very troubling, because if anyone was deserving of additional care and attention, it's a kid who is a, a fragile kid. Exactly. And, and you're right, and, and could they not have engaged um, other kids in being able to see that as well in the ways in which we would want? any kid to have empathy for another child who's struggling. Right, right. Um, yeah. I, I want to focus in on that, and I have extended questions. Uh, and also, um, you know, I know that you, in the book, you, you interviewed uh, Larry's foster or adoptive uh, parents. Right. And so, but we're going to take a quick break right here. I know listeners who are tuning in um, probably, you know, don't want me to take a break, but I'm going to just because the questions are so heavy. So when we return, we'll continue our conversation with Ken Corbett. Don't go away. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, 
Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care serving your community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. Our guest on the phone is Ken Corbett, who is the author of A Murder Over a Girl. Ken has spent some time uh, during a uh, trial over the killing of Larry King. It happened in 2008 in Oxnard, California, and the trial did spark some media attention um, and, and did provide some, you know, open discussion about gender identity uh, and sexual orientation. Some people may, might even say that it was this particular case that, uh, that some have learned from. Um, Ken, I, I mentioned that you did do some interviews with uh, Larry's foster parents. Were they foster parents right. or they ended up uh, adopting him? No, they were his, they were his adopted parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted to touch a little bit on that because um, I know that, you know, there was a, also some uh, contentious feelings about kind of mm-hmm. the role that they played in Larry's life. Mm-hmm. There had been some reports that Larry did not want to live with them, right? Right, right. He actually had alleged that his uh, adopted father had been abusive towards him. Um, and went to the assistant principal at his school, who in turn then brought in the uh, child welfare uh, services uh, in California. Um, those allegations, though, were never substantiated, um, but the child welfare services were aware of Larry, um, and they removed him from the home due to what they termed chaos in the home. Um, but, you know, we need to be careful to. Um, mm-hmm. state the facts correctly, at least uh, as they're indicated in the record. Absolutely. And so he did yeah. en- end up leaving to go live in a, a residential... And he lived in a residential center at the time that he was murdered. He had been living in that center for, uh, excuse me, a little over... He went there around Thanksgiving, and he was mm-hmm. murdered in February, so at the beginning of February. So it's about uh, two months, a little more than two months. The picture I'm trying to paint uh, that became so clear in the book is that, you know, Larry, having at a very young age gone from different environments, and each of those environments did not necessarily nurture 
or uh, embrace him or allowed for him to to really be himself. Like he was lacking so much. And it's right. all these systems that compiled one after the other, the education system, the foster care system, or the, you know, um, child uh, welfare system and all of that. Uh, without the knowledge or education of LGBTQI, uh, you know, kids just kept misplacing this very at-risk mm-hmm. child, right? Right, right. Yes, I think so. And I think that, you know, it points to sort of uh, the inadequacy of mental health care for young kids, period. You know, not only LGBT kids, but kids, period, don't get very good mental health care in this country. Um, but Larry certainly um, did not. He saw seven different therapists over a 10-year period of time. The list of medications he was on is, you know, jaw-dropping. Um, and um, I think, you know, he posed a lot of uh, dilemmas for the people in the mental health field and for educators. But again, it's not at all clear to me uh, who actually sat down with Larry in any sustained way to try to understand who he was. You know, was he always a problem that had to be solved? Um, mm-hmm. As opposed to a kid one could be curious about and learn with and see how you could help them. And now I want to insert, you know, the uh, Brandon. I mean, you mentioned earlier you've done uh, 25 years of study mm-hmm. um, of, of boys. And, mm-hmm. you know, in this book, a lot of the educators... Uh, had mentioned boys will be boys, and they had feared right. for Larry, didn't want him to be, um, you know, didn't want him to present uh, in in a feminine way because they were afraid that the boys will beat him up. And and what was disturbing was that these educators would justify getting beat up uh, because that's just what boys are like. And did you, were you just as disturbed in your findings throughout this trial that, that uh, educators' parents would allow for that to for that, you know, explanation that that's why kids shouldn't be any different from the normal standards of what a boy should be? Definitely. Um, and, I, you know, I mean, I think that that boys will be boys psychology is really a, is bankrupt. I mean, that is a terrible uh, psychology, you know, just, and, and that was proven, I think, by the boys who had been Larry and Brandon's peers when they came into court to testify. Many of them had been eyewitnesses to the murder. Um, um, all of them were these kids' peers, um, and not one boy, um, with the exception of Brandon, had been moved toward violence. And in fact, when they were routinely questioned by the prosecutor as to whether or not Larry presented a threat or disturbed them, they, they, they found the question even hard to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I was really struck over and over again by the ways in which Larry's peers were able to take him in and take him into mind and um, without the kind of reactive uh, and defensive uh, need to push him back into some kind of normal box that other right. people, that, that the teachers in particular, were doing. Right, yeah. right. That was so amazing to me to, to read, yeah. you know, how far behind the adults were compared to the, yeah. the kids, the students. Um, you know, I want to also add this, that there was a psychologist that the defense team had used. Um, mm-hmm. I, I believe his name was Dr. Hoagland. And, mm-hmm. and, and he was also extremely disturbing to me in kind mm-hmm. of, you know, first of all, um, just, you know, basically 
presenting this idea that Larry, by asking Brandon to be his Valentine, uh, was considered sexual harassment. Right. Right. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, no, I mean, and in fact, no one actually could understand say that they ever heard Larry say that. That became the motive story, right? But what I think Dr. Hopeland, in a certain way, was saying is that Larry's um, gender expression was sufficient to be equivalent to and the same thing as sexual harassment. Um, so that was the case that the defense presented. Um, and that was, um, as you read along in the book, you'll understand some of the jurors came to accept that explanation. And so, but that would, you know, uh, presume that Brandon was a uh, normal or ordinary reasonable boy. And we know that normal, ordinary, reasonable boys or humans do not openly, uh, in front of 27 other people, shoot someone in the head, not once, but twice. Um, so the ways in which Larry's uh, femininity was seen to be more dangerous than Brandon's uh, history of violence um, was really uh, exceptionally troubling, mm-hmm. say the least. Yeah. Um, yeah. Also, any, I mean, I want to mention just a few pointers. And, and the point I'm trying to get at with this book, uh, A Murder Over a Girl um, by Ken Corbett, and, and is that I think that every educator, every parent, if you want to have kids, uh, if you want to see change happen, especially our education system and or um you know, child safety, child welfare system, you must read this book. It, it pretty much gives you insight as to what's wrong with the way adults think versus, you know, how uh, advanced kids are these days when it comes to expression and identity and how we are the problem, I would say, as adults. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Ken, I wanted to mention Don Baldrin, who is the homeroom mm-hmm. school teacher uh, who had witnessed the shooting. And, uh, you know, she was the one who had given Larry this dress uh, that one of her daughters had worn to prom or something. And, and I was uh, in disbelief that there were other teachers who had a, who basically blamed her and said that by giving Larry the dress, that that had led to his death. Right, right. How do they even reason something like that? What was that experience like in hearing that in, in testimony? Well, anybody who, uh, and the other person who also, you know, got thrown under the bus was Joy Epstein, who was the assistant principal and who happened to be a lesbian. Um, but they, uh, both Dawn and Joy, um, spoke up for Larry's civil rights. Um, they, they were the only two who actually even mentioned that, that term. When rights were brought up within the courts, they were brought up as rights that had gone too far. The defense would routinely say, and she told him that he had gay rights. Um, you know, or that there was an agenda for gay rights as though that isn't actually part of the law and that it's not based in, you know, common understanding of civil rights. Um, So, um, but I mean, to go back to what you were saying, I think that both of these women were seen as having shown some interest um, in Larry as Larry was beginning to tell them that he you know, he was in a period of transition and was becoming Letitia. Um, and they responded uh, to him, and they were trying um, in their ways to help him. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and to provide for him. Um, and that was seen as encouraging, um, as though encouraging a gender transition would be a bad thing. Um, and in the eyes of many people within that particular community, it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so they were blamed uh, for his death. And uh, both of them, I think, you know, really suffered considerably um, as a consequence. John Bolton was hospitalized five times for depression following the murder. Um, I'm going to go along here, even though uh, I should probably uh, let you go. But I, but I have to ask these two questions just because I was so deeply immersed in the book over the weekend. Um, my, my first question before I let you go would be that uh, you know, just to wrap up our conversation, we know that you know the the trial ended in a mistrial, and Brandon had accepted a plea deal and is serving a 21 year sentence for his crime. Um, but what was disturbing to me is because I ended up watching the documentary uh, that was on featured on HBO as well over this is that uh, his defense attorney, you know, became so uh, I don't I want to use the word obsessed. I mean, to the point where, you know, I forget what her name was, the female. Who tattooed, yeah, she tattooed on her wrist, save Brandon. And, and then mentioned that she loved him. I mean, from a psychologist's point of view, when your attorney is that involved in in you and your case, I mean, is that even healthy? Is that normal? You know, I, I'm not sure I'm in the best position to comment on that because I, I only had a, a few very brief conversations with her. Um, so, and she was not willing to be interviewed for the book. So, um, I... I you know, you got it. Here. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think that uh, the Save Brandon phenomenon was, of course, a phenomenon that we also saw not only from her, but from members of the jury who showed up um, at the first trial, retrial hearing after the hung jury. Uh, six jurors showed up wearing the Save Brandon bracelet that the community has had had made. The origin of them was I could never fully track down. Um, but again, it was that this normal boy had been provoked to the point of manslaughter. Um, and they were, um, you know, uh, very uh, adamant uh, that he not be retried uh, for uh, this murder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My last question to you is, um, you know, it's been, what, eight years um, since Larry's murder. And, um, you know, at, at the end of that documentary, we see Brandon uh, excelling. I mean, he's got his GED now and, and, and stuff like that. And do you think that, do you think that EO Green or, or you know, the school district, um, do you think that they, parents, educators, people have learned? Do you think things have changed over time when it comes to gender identity? Uh, has anything been adopted to make sure that the environments are safe for kids to express freely who they are authentically? Well, at EO Green, at EO Green no. Um, there, there have been no changes made. Um, and um, in the book, in the two rather long interviews I do with Brandon's mother. Even Brandon's mother speaks to this and speaks to it quite poignantly, I think. Um, and Don Baldwin also speaks to this, both on the stand at one point and in an interview with me. Um, with regard to changes for transgender kids, I think it's really dependent upon uh, on neighborhood and district. You know, and we see a lot of variation across the country 
in terms of uh, what kinds of services or how um, trans kids are, you know, worked with and helped within schools, a great deal of variation. Um, and so, um, you do I think things are, I, I certainly hope they're better than they were eight years ago, and I believe they are, um, but I believe they're not as much better as we might wish. I mean, last year, for example, um, 23 young women, uh, trans women of color, were murdered last year, mm-hmm. all of them under the age of 24, um, mm-hmm. all, all but one of them murdered by a man, and most of those murders were not logged as hate crimes. Um, so the extent of gender violence um, that is directed toward um, trans women of color um, is really, uh, you know, of grave concern. And, um, you know, I, I think that uh, the kind of gender violence and bullying that happens in schools, although I do think schools are beginning to take it up and address it, at least some places, still needs to be um, on our radar for sure. Absolutely. Ken, thank you so much for sharing your time with us this morning and for this this incredible book and giving a voice for for Larry. So um, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Pick up, pick up a copy of Ken's book today, A Murder Over a Girl, Justice Gender Junior High by Ken Corbett. Don't go away. The Michelle Meow Show continues right after this. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Like us on Facebook and share us with your friends. Find out more at Facebook.com slash Progressive Voices. Hi, I'm Chuck Spence. I'm the owner of the Maui Sunseeker LGBT Resort, and I'm also vice president of Maui Pride. It's not just the only LGBT resort in Maui, it's the only LGBT resort in all of Hawaii, which is really kind of amazing. Maui Sunseeker actually started years and years before I even got involved. I came along as one of the owners a little bit later in in life. I came to Maui back in 1978 and absolutely loved the island. I fell in love and I thought, this is where I want to live, this is where I want to be. And so from 1978 until 2008, I finally came alive with the dream and bought the Maui Sunseeker because I realized that this would be the next step in my life and um, thought that this would be an ideal situation because I could do something that, that was my own business rather than making money for other people. It's important to have a place where you know you can feel comfortable about yourself, you can feel loved, and you can feel welcomed by everybody. And I think that that's the ambiance that we try to create. And, and that's the message that, that we try to deliver in all of our ads and trying to bring people to Maui, is that you know we're not just an experience on Maui, we're an experience of Maui. When you think back years ago, how closeted we used to be, and you think about how suppressed we were back then to how open and accepting we are now and and it's it's a good progression for society it's good that people are are not just you know tolerating but appreciating diversity and that's the message is that we really need to make sure that, that people appreciate diversity i think that whoever you are follow your passion follow what you believe in follow whether it leads you down the path of art or whether it leads you down a path of business or you know, some other aspect of internet creativity. 
um, follow that and, and just be passionate about what you do. Spotlight on Success and Achievement is brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here on this Monday, the Monday after Easter and Monday, the start of the last week of March. <laughs> this Friday will be April 1st, which means that it's April Fool's Day. And so I'm going to save my uh, April Fool's uh, strategies and tactics for for, next, for for later. I don't want to tell anybody yet. Our next guest is the author of a uh, an article that we found on NPR that is very, very, very fitting for uh, especially me and the conversations that we've been having here on the program. Uh, the title of the article is The Criminal Black Lesbian. Where does this damaging stereotype come from? So let's welcome Nicole Pasulka to the show. Nicole, welcome to the program. Hey, Michelle, how are you? I'm doing great. Uh, well, I don't know. It's kind of weird. I'm like angry and sad at the same time because of the rash of bad news that has just been existing for, you know, this entire week, I feel like. Yeah, totally. I hear that. Um, well, you know, I should let you know, like, just because the article does start out by uh, mentioning Black Lives Matter, I've been hearing a lot of dialogue regarding Black Lives Matter because the advocate had put out this article uh, about San Francisco Pride making Black Lives Matter the organizational grand marshal. Um, and so there's been this, you know, back and forth dialogue, dialogue with some people, you know, saying positive things. And then you hear the the bad stuff. And, and sometimes it's really shocking if you've been desensitized from what people and trolls say online. Um, so I just feel like you and I talking today about uh, the media's perception of queer, trans, uh, black lesbians is very, very fitting for the program. Um, let's touch on Black Lives Matter. So Black Lives Matter has definitely, uh, you know, has definitely put out uh, uh, black uh, lives you know, but also prioritizing, as you say in your article, black, queer and trans women. Um, uh, what do you mean by that? Is that just because the organization or the founders of the organization um, are queer themselves? Or let's touch a little bit on that. Well, I think that that is part of it without a doubt. But I also think, you know, that when you look at what gender nonconforming, queer and trans people of color have experienced, it like in terms of violence, in terms of police profiling, interactions with the criminal justice system, you know, we have seen just a lot of instances where, um, and, and, it's, and it's not just queer people, obviously, mm -hmm. it's also people of color in general, but, you know, we've seen a lot of instances where they have been victims of violence, they have been not protected by police when they are victims of violence, not recognized um, as good victims of violence or mm -hmm. respectful victims of violence, as, you know, we might understand it. So I think they are, I mean, I think the Black Lives Matter activists, as I understand it, have, you know, are trying to make those connections, um, are trying to say, like, it's not just, it certainly is black men, but it's not just black men who've been experiencing these kinds of, like, difficulties, this kind of discrimination. Mm-hmm. Now, when we talk about, um, you know, specifically black lesbians, uh, what what do you think? You know, the how did how does the media portray black lesbians? And and for me, I mean, have, having seen tons of movies and articles and out there, um, they're usually 
in my opinion at least, criminals. When you look at like Queen Latifah and set it off. Right, right. Yeah. And I think, you know, the best example of this that I have found, um, or the most telling example, is the case of the New Jersey Four, which I talk about in the article, which is an instance when in 2006, a group of seven African American women uh, from New Jersey were in Greenwich Village. They were out, you know, in the neighborhood for a night out, and they were catcalled and harassed on the street by a man. And it turned into a big fight. And you know, the man was injured, the women were injured, but before anything even made it to the court, they were totally, you know, like, lambasted and the press ripped apart, called, I think, um, the quote is a seething sapphic septet, you know, um, a wolf pack of killer lesbians. And it was like, these were many, these were sort of masculine of center, kind of maybe more masculine presenting women, not all of them, but, you know, it was pretty clear from the photos that were used alongside the New York Post articles, even from the uh, coverage in the Times, that, like, they were not going to be seen as anything other than aggressors, and that their sexuality and their gender presentation um, was a huge part of how they were being perceived in the media. Mm -hmm. And so, just to kind of draw that back to the title, uh, you know, what do you think? Who's responsible for the damaging stereotype? Where, Where did it come from? You know, and this is the article, right? It probably goes way back. It's so hard to, um, it's so hard to track this stuff. And I really did struggle with not wanting to overstate any kind of these um, Mm -hmm. connections. But I interviewed an academic, a woman named Cookie Wollner, um, who's a historian, African-American history in the early 20th century. And she found articles from the 1920s in the rare instance when um, violence would erupt within sort of like, queer black women's or black lady lovers is what they call them, their social circle, um, the press, the coverage was immediately um, calling this, you know, like the product of their desires, the product of their their sort of, I mean, I don't know if they called it lesbianism, but I think they called it like their condition, you know. And so oh. this has been policed, this has been regulated, this has been, you know, people have been othered in this way and criminalized and considered to be violent because of their race, their gender and their sexuality for a really long time. And we do know that like, and it's not just by any means, um, lesbians, like Mm -hmm. African-American women and men have been stereotyped as violent for a long, long time. Right. Right. But the point of the article and in, in which you beautifully point out is it's this is problematic in that this is what perpetuates, you know, the race, racism that we face today, right? I think that's true. I think the idea of saying, you know, is of calling a group of people criminal as opposed to saying when a crime occurs, it's a crime and it's, you know, this person has committed a crime instead to say this person has committed a crime because they are a criminal because they are, you know, a masculine woman or because they are a black man or because, you know, like because of their race, their gender and their sexual orientation, I think that's that's the issue. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to, you know, draw in the conversation about Black Lives Matter. I feel like because some of their initial, um, you know, protests and, and, and all of that had brought out uh, the 
yeah, all kinds of all forms of protest, whether they were passive or they're just verbal or they were physical in that, you know, um, property had been damaged or disruption of traffic or whatever. Right. You get people who are focusing in on the destruction of property and or the active forms of protest. And they and they kind of use that as blame to say that these people are breaking the law, that they're criminals, that, you know, what they're doing is not uh, it's not effective. Um, do you see that 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 is also happening also in regards to Black Lives Matter, although they've done a wonderful or a great job in bringing attention to the violence and police profiling uh, that black people face? Right, totally. I think that's a really good point. And, you know, we always, wouldn't it be great if we could just civilly show up, raise our hands, wait to speak, you know, and I'm, 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 I, I say we as in any protester, I'm not African-American, I'm white, but, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could, if we could, if we could affect change in this very kind of, in this widely recognized mm-hmm civil manner. And that's not, and as we know, historically, that's not how things work. Um, And I think, you know, it's not a surprise that people are very bothered by some of these tactics, but it's also not a surprise that, like, this is what it takes to get attention, because as so many of these protesters have pointed out, they're, they've been largely ignored. This is not a new conversation necessarily, but it's certainly is getting um, airtime and attention in a way that it hasn't before. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, like, I understand why people talk about methods and get frustrated when things aren't, when when things are disruptive. But then again, I mean, I think we have to be realistic and say that we've reached this point where Mm -hmm. it has to be. Right, right, right. And then you factor in, you know, the two co-founders of Black Lives Matter to be queer women And then that turns into this conversation of being angry black lesbians. Right, right. Um, And that's what I want to call attention to and what struck me about uh, your article. I'm going to take a quick break right here, Nicole. But when we come back, I want to, uh, you know, conclude conclude the awesome article that you wrote out there. And so stick around. Stay with us. The Michelle Meow Show continues right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. Babe. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. 
After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care serving your community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us here on this Monday. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. Our special guest today on the phone is Nicole Pasulka, who wrote an article, The Criminal Black Lesbian, Where Does This Damaging Stereotype Come From? Um, Nicole, there's something about the article that also I wanted to point out uh, that touches on, you know, the lived experiences of black lesbians, um, every day. And that this, this notion or this idea that, uh, you know, black lesbians are aggressive or, you know, have, uh, characteristics that can be considered criminal. I mean, that has an in- incredible, uh, adverse effect on, I think, you know, just, just trying to live every day. Um, and that's what I pulled out of the article, uh, right? Sure, yeah. And, you know, one of the things that the, I talk about in the article, um, and I was lucky enough to have research from a group called the Equity Project to kind of back this up, is that it starts super young, too, right? Mm. Like, there are stories, um, it, I think it's like 40% of girls in juvenile justice are somehow queer, some fall under the banner of this sort of, like, lesbian, trans, queer, 85% of those girls are girls of color. Like, in their experiences at school and with law enforcement, um, they are treated, they are, they are targeted and treated, you know, with, like, sort of unfairly based around their gender presentation and their race, right? Like, so I think these are, you're right, these are real things that are happening to people um, as they go through their lives, and you can't, we can't just sort of bracket off queer black women, like, it's also trans people right. more broadly, but, um, but I think, yeah, like, what little research we do have around this suggests that it's not, I mean, it's just, it, there's more adversity. Right. And then it plays along why we need uh, Black Lives Matter and or, you know, social movements like this, because uh, like the uh, the the situation that you talked about before in which the four women were incarcerated yeah, for, for that crime. Yeah. I mean, you have to think about now that uh, they're they've done their time and whatnot. Um, that's on their record. And then that yep. also, yep. you know, it's like a downward spiral totally. for us. Yeah, and I think, you know, we've seen so many gains in the past two years, so many very clear gains that have been really widely celebrated in the media. And I think what the Black Lives Matter activists are really saying is, like, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's not leave people behind. 
right. Like, mm-hmm. if we're going to do this, if we're going to talk about LGBT rights, queer rights, gay rights, we need to talk about what that means for a very broad community of people. And um, and I just feel like that reminder is very is very useful. And when you look back in history, like, you're going to see different stories based around different sort of intersections of identity. Nicole, thank you so much for your time and for joining us here on the program and for sharing this article. I think it's extremely important that we keep the dialogue and the conversation going so that people can uh, learn more and have, you know, education. uh, Yeah, yeah. You know, you're not you're not contributing to the problem. Oh, I'm still learning so much more. But thank you, Michelle. Yeah, I really appreciate you reading the piece and talking about it. If you'd like to read the entire piece, you can check it out at NPR.org and uh, search the title, The Criminal Black Lesbian, Where Does This Damaging Stereotype Come From? Uh, It's also filed uh, in the code switch um, area of NPR. And so thanks so much for joining us here on the show today. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, We talked a lot about the education system, foster care system, child welfare system, and, and parent parents, I mean, parenting, I mean, you have the power to make decisions that will impact your child's future. And and you have the power to shape who that person becomes. And if you're going to put your child in a public school system, not only do you have to think about your child's safety, but you have to think about how your child interacts with other children. And I think that, you know, kids are just way more advanced than adults when it comes to being um, insightful uh, in terms of accepting one another, even the differences. And I truly feel like the, the, the part where they get anxiety or they they don't understand something and the way that they react has everything to do with the environment that you provide for the children. And that is not just parents, but obviously educators. So there's a lot of information out there. Um, and I, I know that, you know, right now it may feel as if a lot of parents and educators don't have enough information when it comes to gender identity, gender expression, um, you know, being gender queer, being transgender, being a gender variant and, and all those items. And I hate to say it, but just like some transgender teens have had to just go up on Google and, and Google what they're feeling, you know, parents can do that, too. And there's so much information out there today that I couldn't necessarily pinpoint one area where you can find these resources. But there are books, there are television shows, there are art, you know, there are articles. There's just a lot out there, and um, I don't think that it's only limited to if you think that you have a child in the classroom, and or if you're a parent and you think you have like a, a transgender child or a child who is expressing, uh, you know, a different, I guess, outside gender norms. I think that even if you believe you have a heterosexual. Um, child, you should read up on these items so that you're not contributing to what, you know, obviously what we're facing, the problems that we're facing. So I kind of you know, went on this big, long <laughs> lecture, it feels like, and I don't mean to, to lecture, but when you, as for me as a stranger, I never met Larry King, um, but I cried over and over and over by reading Ken Corbett's book, A Murder Over a Girl, Justice, Gender, and Junior High. I think about so many kids out there who feel lonely, who feel sad, who are hurt and who are bullied and who are faced with violence just by being who they are. We've got to do better because we can. 
and we've got to do better because we're adults and we've lived through so many years of our own pain that it's just wrong to have children and not give them the tools to succeed in life. Wow. <laughs> I'm not a psychologist, by the way. I'm just Michelle Miao, the host of The Michelle Miao Show. It's your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. We're going to leave you with some tax tips because it's, uh, well, nearly the deadline. I don't know if anybody's panicking, but uh, maybe you should, maybe you shouldn't. Uh, but get your taxes done. And especially if you're, uh, you know, newlyweds, you're new, married, uh, same-sex couples, because some of those uh, laws have changed depending on the state that you're from. And we'll be back at the same time tomorrow, 4 o'clock, Pacific Standard Time. For everything else, you can head to michellemeow.com. I've just posted a new television show featuring Ellen Page, Ian Daniel, uh, and they talk about their new show, Gaycation, and also uh, Elizabeth Lanyon from Dyke March here in San Francisco, and Dimitri Moishianis, who is from Folsom Street Events, and we talk about how these events have changed, although they're iconic and legendary here in San Francisco. So make sure you check it out by visiting michellemeow.com. Thank you so much. We'll see you tomorrow. So it's tax season, and I think it's very, very important that we sit down and we actually talk about our money. Uh, I, I, there's a lot of information out there. I, for one, I'm always confused every year as to what are considered credits and, uh, you know, if I'm going to pay back money, I'm going to get money. So I'm very, very, very thankful that we have uh, professionals here on the show who can give us some advice. So as I mentioned earlier, life changes, you know, whether you, you got married, you're having a baby, you're buying or selling your home or sending a child off to college or even retiring, uh, the, the, those types of things mean there are going to be some tax changes. And right now, I think that, you know, the average refund is like $2,800, which is a lot of money <laughs> to be leaving on the, the table if you're not filing correctly. So let's welcome Block Advisors, Maria Rebelta. Maria, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Michelle. So what are some commonly overlooked credits and deductions? One that I see a lot is the earned income tax credit for lower income workers. About 20% of eligible taxpayers miss this credit. Um, something that's exciting this year is California came out with its new version, the California Earned Income Tax Credit. This is um, really interesting to, to have this conversation, especially in a state like California, in which, you know, there's uh, all kinds of different types of jobs or reasons why, you know, people might miss out on these deductions and credits. Mm -hmm. Let's answer that. Why would someone overlook these credits? Because they've been told they don't have to file because they are below a certain filing threshold. Um, this is new though this year. Even if they didn't have to file before, it's important that they file a California tax return this year to see if they're eligible. I, I want to kind of paint this picture out to our listeners here. I mean, if you're, if you're not listening to this, you're, you could be leaving money um, on, on the table here. But give us kind of like a picture of, of what that might look like. Like if you're someone who's working part time or, you know, maybe you're, you're, you fit into an age demographic, you know, what does, um, who does this, you know, Look, look who who do these people look like that are that might be missing out on these credits? Well, let me give you an example of someone that maybe has a couple of children. Um, they they make around fourteen thousand dollars. They can get a combined up to eight thousand dollars with the federal earned income tax credit and the new California earned income tax credit. Wow, that, I mean, <laughs> that sounds like a lot of money. Yes. So so if we like kind of pull back and we say, okay, this might this might this might mean you and someone wants to do something about it. How would you go about, you know, getting your the money that you might be leaving on the table? Well, the important and main thing is file a tax return. Even if you've been told in the past, go ahead and file that federal and that California tax return. That's how you claim the credit. 
Wonderful. So go and file a tax return, yes. even if you're you think you might be making too little. At the very least, talk to somebody. I think that's important because you yes. could be leaving money on the table, especially for a lot of us in California who work part time jobs or, you know, you're a college student, um, as Maria had said. So make sure you talk to someone or or file. Yeah. Go out and file your taxes. Maria, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. 